Jan smiled as she peered out the kitchen window one autumn evening in 1998. The night sky was Colorado perfect. Cotton clouds peppered the dissolving sunset. She checked the oven. The fish sticks were nearly done. The smell of savory cod and frying oil flooded the air. Just as she was about to thank God for granting her such a beautiful sight, Jan was interrupted by the sounds of clinking silverware. Her daughter, Nicolette, plunked plates and utensils on the table carelessly. Jan chastised her for setting the table too loudly, but Nicolette just rolled her eyes. At that, Jan launched into a scolding lecture on Jesus and the coming apocalypse. The sermon continued unabated until dinner. Nicolette was thankful when her mother finally stopped talking for grace. While her mom prayed, Nicolette made her own desperate plea to God. She begged the Lord to get her through the meal without hearing any more talk about Monty Kim Miller. Monty was the leader of her mom's messed up church. He claimed that he spoke directly to God. It was Monty who convinced Jan that a violent Armageddon was only days away. Unfortunately, Nicolette's prayer went unanswered. As soon as her mother finished saying grace, she began yet another tirade about the second coming. It was exhausting. Nicolette huffed. Jan immediately snapped at her daughter. Either get on board or get out of her house. They would be leaving for Jerusalem soon. Monty Kim Miller was God. He could not be questioned. If he asked Jan to kill her own daughter, she wouldn't hesitate. She told Nicolette that if she had to, she'd shoot her square in the face. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. This week, in a one-part episode, we're taking a deep dive into a doomsday cult known as the Concerned Christians. The group was established in the mid-1980s by a young Procter & Gamble sales executive, Monty Kim Miller. Initially, Monty founded the group to preach against mind control, perpetrated by extreme religious cults. Then, his organization began employing the same tactics it criticized. Somewhere along the way to becoming a respected pastor, the anti-cult activist did a complete 180. Luckily, Monty's violent activities were interrupted by law enforcement, just in the nick of time. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. 
So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Monty Miller was born in the whistle-stop town of Burlington, Colorado, on April 20th, 1954. Just over 10 miles west of the Kansas border, this humble farming community occupied a three-mile slice of prime Colorado prairie. It was a beautiful area with nothing to do but explore nature and run free. On Sundays, almost the whole town filed into the pews for church. But Monty's family wasn't religious. In fact, they never went to services. Despite his environment, Monty never received any formal religious education. Instead, he spent most of his time on schoolwork. He was an excellent student. He never smoked, drank, or messed around with drugs. All in all, he was a smart kid who lived a stable life. Then, in 1973, during his first year at college, 19-year-old Monty started to change. That year, he was introduced to the work of Pastor Bill Bright. Bright had built an organization called the Campus Crusade for Christ, which ran an extensive outreach program. Crew, as it was affectionately dubbed, was an interdenominational Christian club for university students. Though it was founded in the 1950s, the group's presence on U.S. campuses was still formidable some 20 years later. Crew was specifically geared towards offering support to new converts. Upon hearing Bright speak, Monty connected with his message that promised eternal life to those that got to know Christ personally. He liked Bright's idea that people didn't belong to themselves. They were purchased at the cost of Christ's blood. Therefore, each and every person belonged to Christ, without rights of their own. Inspired by the story of self-sacrifice, Monty converted. Though it may seem strange for a student to join a devout church organization seemingly overnight, it's common for students to find God while they're at college. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In their study in the BE Journal of Economic Analysis and Policy, researchers P. Wesley Roughton and J.K. Walker wrote, Undergraduate education is a time of great change for students. 32.9% of students who begin college as atheists leave college with a religion. About 15% fully change their religious identity. Having left home, Monty was searching for guidance, perhaps even a new parental figure, Another study entitled The Relationship Between Attachment to God and Reliance on God said, Religious people believe God is available all the time to take care of them, calm them, and help them. Unlike the parent, God is accessible, available, and protective. Montine latched on to God and Pastor Bright's teachings and held tight. Even after he graduated, he continued to work with Cruz Outreach as he looked for paid employment. 
Eventually, he landed a day job with Procter & Gamble in the marketing division. With a potential career in the bag and the knowledge that God was on his side, Monty proposed to his then-girlfriend. We don't know a great deal about Monty's first wife. In 1974, the two had a small wedding. Within just a few years, they moved to Denver. We do know that their marriage lasted nine years. On the heels of his forsaken union in 1985, 31-year-old Monty organized his own faith-based group, the Concerned Christians. Please note, Monty's assembly is not to be confused with Mesa, Arizona's anti-Mormon organization of the same name. Monty started Concerned Christians in an attempt to distance real Christianity from the popular movements of the time. He couldn't abide the overly sentimental New Age interpretations of the Bible or the bastardization of its teachings by religious cults. Monty gravitated toward the apocalyptic, evangelical sermons of old. Concerned Christians was his attempt to revive those principles. Monty openly questioned other churches which didn't take the Bible literally. It didn't matter the denomination. He was hostile to anyone he deemed sacrilegious. But most often, Monty condemned easy targets, like touchy-feely churches and crazy cults, which gave him credibility as a preacher. People thought that because he discredited false teachings, he must be the real deal himself. It was a smart marketing tactic, and over time, people came to trust him to tell the hard truths. In addition to helping the police track cults, he also spoke at churches about preventing brainwashing and manipulation. According to one Denver policeman who knew him at the time, Monty Kim Miller was on our side of the fence, and Concerned Christians was a good name. Monty became a trusted ally to Colorado law enforcement and traditional preachers alike. Determined to bring down frauds and faux Christian doomsdayers in his state, Monty sought out a greater soapbox, one with farther reach. In the mid-80s, Monty convinced a local Christian radio station to let him sermonize on the radio. His fiery rhetoric and righteous indignation expanded his listenership every time he graced the airwaves. He even recorded audio tapes and put his sales experience to work by offering them for a nominal fee. By the summer of 1985, 31-year-old Monty was making a real name for himself. He seized every opportunity to take the spotlight. He relished striking out against the media for perpetuating what he believed to be a false image of Christianity. A growing audience of fans reached out to him, and he made them feel like he cared for them. Soon, it dawned on him that the fans of his radio show might constitute a potential congregation, so he invited them to hear him preach in person. At the pulpit, he spoke with such authority, it seemed impossible to question his take on the Bible. His new followers were unique and gifted businessmen and housewives, lawyers and hard hats. Out-of-work laborers, seniors, and families with little kids made up a significant chunk of his approximately 80-member constituency. By the end of 1985, 31-year-old Monty was proud to be considered an anti-cult expert by several of the best-known churches around the city. But his budding fame started to go to his head. The knowledge he acquired from tracking and studying cults armed him to manipulate others with ease. He was well-positioned to lead a crowd. Monty's new cockiness was noted by several colleagues. Having met him several times, cult tracker Bill Hansberger said, 
I can honestly say he's the most arrogant person I ever met. He's very intense and has a flash temper. Monty's ego, inflammatory passion, and intensity were his greatest tools. He constantly told his flock that they were unique, chosen, special. By extension, that meant he too was special for leading such a distinguished congregation. Thus, Monty's self-esteem expanded even further. Initially, his disciples failed to notice his message and personality were shifting because his charismatic delivery remained so compelling. But by 1986, 32-year-old Monty Miller's views deviated significantly from their evangelical origins. He preached that his congregation was selected by God to be the one and only true church on earth. Concerned Christians have been chosen to abide by an extraordinary set of rules, separate from the spiritual regulations shared by the rest of humanity. He said the concerned Christians are of a heavenly kingdom church, and we operate on completely different principles. The love of Jesus Christ can redeem the most evil people, no matter what they have done. Of course, his implication was that those evil people would only be saved if they joined his movement. And this also gave him and his sect members permission to disobey common laws. Though he'd originally set out to destroy the most extreme cults in and around Denver, he was now starting a brand new cult of his own. Next, as Monty's ego and congregation flourish, he loses his grip on reality. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1985, 31-year-old anti-cult activist Monty Kim Miller established a brand new church called the Concerned Christians. Alongside preaching, he was an outspoken activist against cults. His thriving flock single-handedly disrupted conversations about traditional faiths and organized Christianity in America. Monty's fiery rhetoric garnered him massive attention, and he loved it. In response, Monty started leading campaigns against movements he deemed to be perverse or too new age. He challenged the practices of all kinds of churches. He also found fault in their connections to God and defended the priests who helped him build his reputation. Monty's power over his assembly grew all the time and became more and more insular. By focusing on the sins of other congregations, Monty shielded the sect from its own flaws. The more he spoke publicly, the more egotistical he became. Dr. John Amodeo wrote about this in his article, Why Pride is Nothing to be Proud of. He said, we look for others' flaws as a way to conceal our own. We relish criticizing others as a defense against recognizing our own shortcomings. This rotten hubris dissolved any semblance of self-awareness in Monty or his congregants. They played up their supremacy and denigrated their neighbor churches to no end. Monty explained that the world, outside of his congregation, was Satan's wasteland. The more enemies he made for his congregation, the closer the members had to cling to him. 
In an effort to strengthen the bond with his flock and gain notoriety, he started a new bi-monthly newsletter called Report from Concerned Christians. The paper focused on strange topics like the harmonic convergence of 1987. This cosmological event was expected to occur after a worldwide guided meditation. People around the globe would pray the very same prayer at the very same time. The convergence was supposed to coincide with a rare positioning of planets, fulfill a widely accepted prophecy, and introduce humanity to a new era of peace. When the prophecy failed, Monty blamed the impure congregations of other churches. In the subsequent years, Monty all but abandoned the teachings of traditional Christianity. It became a point of pride that he hadn't grown up religious and had never undergone official spiritual training. To him, this proved a pure connection with God, an authentic one that made him superior to other men of the cloth. The Lord chose him, a common man, as a spiritual conduit rather than a scholar or an educated priest. In the late 1980s, his religious focus veered even further away from its foundations. Monty started criticizing larger institutions, like schools and the government. He even denounced the non-denominational world faith movement. But he didn't stop there. Monty continued to rip into organized Christianity, too. According to some reports, he constantly denounced Americans for worshiping the false idol of the American flag. Monty claimed patriotism was a betrayal of God and his truths. He said that American ideals represent earthly and unbiblical pursuits. These ideas weren't unusual among fundamentalists. They just seemed to completely contradict his initial anti-cult activism. But his most extreme opinions always elicited excited debate and attention, which was why he was attracted to bizarre ideas. To Monty, all attention was good attention, so he peddled controversial notions. For instance, he claimed there would be no grace for anyone because the Christian church has married the whore, America, and anyone involved with the church was going to hell. Monty even said that God interpreted the Pledge of Allegiance as spiritual adultery. In his book, The End of Days, Fundamentalism and the Struggle for the Temple Mount, Gershom Gorenberg wrote that Monty felt, The 4th of July was a pagan festival and a tip-off to America's roots in satanic Freemasonry. Monty castigated several Christian organizations for rejecting God's plan and endorsing the apostate church's plan for the kingdom. He also claimed that the Christian right was behind the evil saturating the United States. Preachers he once engaged started to refuse his requests to talk, and the public began to push back against his outlandish claims too. Increasingly under fire, Monty isolated himself and demanded that his believers do the same. He asked them to leave their family homes and live with other disciples. Some concerned Christians moved in together. Others simply avoided family and cut off friends. This wasn't much of a surprise as most of Monty Kim's devotees did what he asked of them whenever he asked anything. Cult tracker Bill Hansberger said of this dynamic, if Kim says lie, they lie. If Kim says steal, they steal. By that point, Monty had trained his disciples to fall in line no matter what he said. For years, the church had denounced the act of channeling spirits. But in 1988, 34-year-old Monty began claiming he was now in direct communication with God. In the coming years, his supposed contact with the Lord deepened. 
He eventually even purported to have the power to channel the Holy Spirit. This was exactly the act he condemned in others, but he'd already established he could follow an extraordinary set of rules, so his followers believed him. Always seeking the spotlight, Monty was eager to share this news publicly. In the mid-1990s, when interviewed on Denver's KUSA-TV News, he said, God speaks through my mouth. Yeah, he just tells people, like I guess Old Testament prophets of the old days, and he speaks through my mouth. Once his followers fully accepted his claims, Monty even began to speak as God during bi-monthly meetings. His eyes rolled back in his head, he bellowed and shrieked, and he contorted his lips to summon God's voice. His followers ate it up. By 1996, their faith in their 42-year-old leader inspired him to further expand the congregation's outreach. He wanted to spread God's word by producing a brand new radio program, one that was completely his own. He called it Our Foundation. On air, Monty emphasized how spiritual rebirth would lead one to eternal life. He insisted true believers transform themselves. By becoming meek and discarding their own egos, they could make room for Christ to inhabit their bodies. Monty wanted them to shrink their selves so Jesus could prosper. He cautioned his listeners to steer clear of Satan's agents in the flesh, but he said, Bless them that curse us, do good to them that hate us, pray for them which despitefully use us. These phrases made it easier for his members to dismiss non-believers and drove members further from their disapproving families. It didn't take long for their loved ones to notice. Many tried to warn their relatives against associating with Monty. For the most part, their pleas were ignored, but eventually outsiders started to worry about Monty's message too. An Idaho radio manager named Lee Schaefer said his station had been fielding complaints about Monty's show for being too extreme from the get-go. Schaefer believed in the First Amendment and wanted to protect the preacher's right to speak freely, so he kept him on at first. To assuage disgruntled listeners, he added on a disclaimer at the end of Monty's show. But not long after that, the concerned Christians fell behind in their payments to the station. Schaefer, along with others that aired Our Foundation, repeatedly requested their airtime fees to no avail. Monty often outright rejected the station manager's bills, claiming that God told him not to pay them. A few weeks later, Schaefer received a crazed letter from Monty. The preacher vehemently denounced patriotism and free speech, the very principles that had saved his program. He wrote patriotic fervor in the USA was not of God. He went on to say if their listeners hoped to serve the Lord in good faith, they would need to divorce themselves from a false love of country. The letter closed with a demand from God himself, air our foundation for free. Monty advised the managers not to laugh off his request either because God was not joking. And because of this, concerned Christians refused to pay their outstanding bills. As a result, our foundation was taken off the air. These debacles were only the prelude to Monty's financial problems. In late 1997, the 43-year-old preacher was forced to file for bankruptcy. He was reportedly over $600,000 in debt and owed the IRS over $100,000. 
Left with few options, Monty demanded donations from his devotees. He made it known that he expected absurd contributions of at least $100,000 per family. Some of his disciples were rumored to have liquidated their assets and given him the sum totals. Other concerned Christians wanted to help, but didn't know how. Some reports say Monty actually demanded a payment of $20,000 plus all of the profits from one member's family business. When the congregant dismissed him, Monty said the whole lot of them would be damned to hell, including anyone who attended the family's Bible study group. Monty was tireless in extorting his followers. One day, he ended up at Sherry Clark's doorstep. She didn't hear his knock as she put on a pot of tea. When she lit the gas, she heard the front door open. When she turned, the preacher from her son-in-law's church was standing in her kitchen. Monty, glasses askew, towered over the frail woman. He seemed out of breath, and he panted like an injured animal. When Sherry asked what Monty wanted, he summoned the voice of God. His eyes fell back in his head. He shook and spoke in an artificially deep voice. In reference to the Holy Trinity, Monty stressed words by repeating them in threes. He said the Lord was angry with her. Angry, angry, angry. He allegedly told Sherry that if she wanted to be forgiven for her sins, she needed to write a check to concerned Christians in the amount of $40,000. Just then, the kettle whistled on the stove. Sherry rushed to the stove to turn off the gas, but Monty didn't stop his tirade. He suddenly doubled the amount she supposedly owed. By the time God left his body, the number had risen to $120,000. Sherry didn't know what to say. She told Monty he couldn't be speaking for the Lord because God knew she had nowhere near that kind of money. Monty cursed her and stormed out. Clearly, he was losing control. His finances were a mess. His recent strong-arm tactics lost him some of his loyal members. Monty felt he had to do something big to stay afloat. In the fall of 1997, the 43-year-old gathered his devotees to announce some special news. Assuming his God persona, Monty prophesied that the world was on its last legs. The new millennium was nigh, and so was the end of days. Monty claimed that on the 10th of October, 1998, the ground beneath Denver would rattle and writhe. Hell would break loose and the non-believers would perish. Monty was quite clear. A devastating earthquake was coming to swallow the city's sinners. The mountains would rip open and devour those who strayed from God's path. But the concerned Christians would be saved if they followed their leader. Monty would be anointed as the reincarnation of Christ after the quake. When his eyes rolled forward and his own voice came back, he told his parishioners he had been hand-selected by God as one of the end-time true prophets to the world. He knew he would die, but he was unafraid. The congregation was speechless. Monty told them not to be afraid. They needed to know, however, that he would be killed in the final days of December 1999, the last days of the old millennium. His resurrection would occur three days after his death in the city of Jerusalem, and they would be there to welcome him back. Up next, Monty Kim Miller and over 70 of his disciples disappear without a trace. Now, back to the story. 
anti-church, anti-government, and supposedly anti-cult. Cult leader Monty Kim Miller claimed he was the final prophet of God, a former pharmaceutical sales rep who once preached against the evils of extreme religious sects. Monty now forced his followers to accept that he spoke for God himself. In 1998, 44-year-old Monty channeled God to warn his congregation of the apocalypse that was supposedly coming in the year 2000. On Judgment Day, Monty said the world would bow down to him. He would be instrumental in forgiving throngs of sinners. If his flock wanted to earn salvation, the only way was to follow him to Israel. Ignoring the prophecy would result in their own horrific deaths. This prophecy was likely a convenient way for Monty to escape his financial problems, but it may have also been a symptom of mental illness. Monty's behavior fits the hallmarks of a condition known as the Messiah Syndrome. Psychologist Dr. Stephen A. Diamond wrote that Messiah Syndrome causes individuals to misidentify themselves with a messianic image, resulting in a dangerous form of ego inflation. Psychotic patients report hearing the voice of God. Paranoia can cause defensive violence toward demonized non-believers. The concerned Christians were not to defy Monty any longer. He was God. Those who remained committed were told to cut off all ties with anyone who didn't believe their prophet's predictions. Monty needed to completely cut off his disciples from dissenting voices because he was about to issue his most dramatic demand yet. He told his followers that they were going to leave for Jerusalem to avoid the world-ending earthquake. They were to join him in the Holy Land to welcome the apocalypse together. On the day of the supposed quake, people all over Colorado noticed that their friends and family who had attended Monty's church were mysteriously missing. At least 75 of Monty's congregants disappeared overnight. They emptied their homes, left their jobs, and abandoned their families without explanation. In her Washington Post article, Cult Leader and Followers Vanish, Hannah Rosen wrote, Judging from the outside, you would think the White House on this quiet, manicured street was a snapshot of suburban tranquility. All the props are there, a pumpkin on the front steps waiting to be carved, a barbecue out back, and potted plants hanging from the porch. Only when you peer in the windows do you realize no one's there. She was describing the home of Monty Kim Miller. It was soon discovered that some of Monty's devotees left cryptic letters or gifts on their stoops for their parents, lovers, or children. Other members taped notes to their neighbors' mailboxes. Among the items left behind was a tape entitled, I Am the Lawmaker. According to the Chesner Center for Studies on New Religions, the description scribbled on the case was a reference to a quote by Charles Manson. On the cassette, Monty preached that the end of days prophecy would converge in the cultic mission of Man-Son, setting up a comparison between Manson and Jesus. The recording claimed that Manson was doing God's work. Monty glorified his heinous acts, saying, the overriding theme of the Manson murders is judgment and the return of the Lord in judgment. In another section, he proclaimed that the killings of actress Sharon Tate and her unborn child have rendered a kind of divine judgment by killing a baby who represents the Antichrist. Monty apparently believed the Manson murders incited the end of times and fulfilled his prophecy. 
According to Tommy Udo's book, Charles Manson, Music, Mayhem, Murder, Monty's devotees considered Manson to be one of the two prophets mentioned in Revelation 11.3. The Bible verse reads as follows, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. Of the aforementioned two witnesses, the concerned Christians believe that Charles Manson was the first. The second chosen prophet was Monty. The tape also said that the highly anticipated birth of Christ's New Jerusalem would occur once the world's sinners had been judged. This find led local investigators to track the cult to the Holy City. The concerned Christianists were pro-Israel, but bizarrely, they were also aggressively against the Jewish people. They believed all Jewish people should be forced to convert to Christianity. They also felt Muslims should be expunged from Israel, violently if need be. These beliefs put them on the radar of Israeli authorities. In early January of 1999, after months of searching, the Israeli police arrested eight American tourists and their six children in Jerusalem's Matzah and Mevaseret neighborhoods. The kids were immediately taken into custody while the parents were interrogated. At their safe house, police reportedly discovered another cassette tape and a stack of papers. The folder contained an image of Charles Manson, captioned, Time of the End Series. The voice on the accompanying audio cassette was none other than that of Monty Kim Miller. On the tape, Monty spoke about Manson and connected him to the detonation of nuclear weapons in Nagasaki, Bill Clinton's birthday, and the fall of the USSR. Though Monty never said outright that his group would follow in Manson's footsteps, his obsession with the murderer and his declining mental state were apparent. The police suspected that the concerned Christians meant to terrorize Old Town Jerusalem. They were believed to be planning a violent attack at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the famous place of worship also known as the Temple Mount. When questioned, some cult members confirmed the suspicions of authorities. They said that violence, bloodshed, and their own deaths were necessary to prepare a path for the second coming of Christ. But unfortunately, none of those arrested had any idea where 45-year-old Monty Kim Miller was, and at least 60 concerned Christians were still missing. The captured cult members were deported back to the States on January 8, 1999. Israeli police believed that the remainder of the group was planning a murderous shootout in Old Jerusalem, and they intended to commit mass suicide there. Once back in the U.S., the deported members of Monty's sect evaded their family members. There were no official charges, so they were free to go about their lives. As the weeks rolled by, they continued to reject visits from friends and loved ones. They also refused to speak with the press. But eventually, the concerned Christians did put out a statement. It claimed that violence in Israel was never their intention. Over 20 years have passed since Monty Kim Miller and his devotees left Denver. Authorities still have no idea where he currently resides. Experts and law enforcement believe that some of the members could be in Greece. It's possible others have returned to the States and may live in New Mexico or Pennsylvania. One paper claimed Monty had been spotted in London after the onset of the new millennium. But since then, his location has remained a mystery. Sadly, there's been no contact between the missing concerned Christians and their estranged family members. In essence, the cult seems to have vanished. 
Had he stuck to his activist roots, perhaps Monty would still be in the spotlight today, taking down abusive sects and helping those who fell victim to the influence of manipulative cult leaders. If he'd done that, he might even be seen as a hero. Instead, he followed in the footsteps of those he claimed to hate and ended up the villain of his own story. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Monty Kim Miller and the concerned Christians, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Charles Manson, Music, Mayhem, Murder by Tommy Udo, and the article Apocalyptic Management by Monty Kim Miller by Maria Lepukari, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>